Can we turn then to Philippians chapter 2 for our text this morning? Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 4. Philippians chapter 2, and beginning to read from the book of God, there at verse 1. If there be therefore if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And so on. Amen. And may the Lord be pleased to bless his word to us and our meditation upon it. <clears throat> well, this morning we want to continue our study in the book of Philippians, this short book which is characterized by joy. And we have looked at chapter 1. We had a number of sermons on that chapter. And basically that chapter could easily be summed up under this simple title, The Single Mind. The Single Mind. And that's what motivated the Apostle Paul. That's what caused him to have so much joy, even in his terrible experiences that, we, that he went through. He had a single mind. You see, the single mind is concerned about the fellowship of the gospel. The single mind is concerned about the furtherance of the gospel. And the single-minded individual is concerned about the faith of the gospel. And that's what we looked at last week, about the faith, defending the faith of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul was impressing upon us in the first chapter there that we are to have single minds. We are to be wholehearted. We are to be dedicated. We are not to be in any sense double-minded, but single-minded, determined. And that's the way that we are to take up the cross. And when you have this single mind, this determination to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to bow to his sovereignty in all matters, then you come to the conclusion that your circumstances, although they may well be contrary to flesh and blood and things that we would naturally recoil from if left to ourselves, yet these very circumstances cause the furtherance of the gospel. The gospel will not be thwarted. And that's what the Apostle Paul found out and was willing to convey to the Philippians there in chapter 1, the single mind. Well, friends, chapter 2 is somewhat different. And it may well be summed up by this simple statement. It talks about and exemplifies the submissive mind, the submissive mind. Now, we did not read it, but this chapter here is certainly the most theological of the whole epistle. 
And in the will of God, by his blessing, we seek to look upon that on another occasion. But before we come to that great part that tells us about the humiliation and the condescension of the Lord Jesus, and then followed by his exaltation, we want to look at these four verses to introduce uh, this highly complex theological section of the chapter. And the title I want to give to our meditation this morning is On the Lookout. On the Lookout. Perhaps I should have given you the text that I want to highlight first. It's verse 4. What do we find in verse 4 of chapter 2? Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And that's where we get our title from, On the Lookout. Christian, you are to be on the lookout. Now, everyone's on the lookout in this world. We all are by nature, we look out for what? We look out for number one. And even in the Christian church today, we have people who are utterly taken up with themselves. They want to satisfy themselves. They want to satisfy their own appetites. They don't really care about anyone else. It's me. It's egotism. It's full of me, me, me. That's what they're looking out for. That's what we find, sadly, in some congregations in the churches today. It's rampant, of course, in the world, as you would expect it to be. And it always has been. Ever since the fall, we have been looking out after number one ourselves. Well, as you will be aware, friends, or you at least should be aware, that Christianity, biblical Christianity, is counter-cultural. It always has been. There's nothing new in that. And this is one of the ways that we walk on the narrow road that leads unto life. We are on a different path. We have a different mindset. We're not taken up with the things of this world. We're not going to live like a, a worldling. We are to look out for others. And this is revolutionary, absolutely revolutionary. And indeed, if we were able to apply this to the, all in the church and to the world, it would be a tremendous transformation that would come upon us. But we cannot apply this to the world. And we cannot expect the world to follow this. And this is how he opens up this section here in chapter 2. What do we find here in verse 1? Before he gives the ultimate example of someone who did not look out for his own interests, he gives us an introduction. And what did he say here in verse 1? If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. What's he talking about here? If you have been reading and listening closely, 
you would have noticed the four ifs that we find in this one verse. Now these ifs is not a sense of doubt. What he's saying here is, this is the fact. This is the reality. This is what is true of the Philippians. And what he's basically saying in this verse is that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have consolation in Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. You are reconciled to God through what Jesus Christ has done. You know something of the love of God. If any comfort of love. Christian, Paul tells us, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. This is a, an everyday experience for every single Christian. We have wonderful consolation in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We know in a real sense the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts. We have fellowship of the Spirit Christ has given to the Christian, the Holy Spirit. Every one of us shares in this if we're Christians. We have one Spirit among us. If any bowels and mercies, well, we know because we looked at this before, bowels talks about the affections. It's not what we would normally associate the bowels with. Our affections have been changed, friends. Our affections are in some sense aligned with the affections of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love holiness, not as much as we should, of course. His was perfect, but nevertheless, our affections have been changed. Our whole lives have been changed through the new birth. And what Paul is telling them, you need to realize your position in Christ. These things are true of you, and they are true of you today, Christian, also. And because of this, because of this change that belongs to the Christian and only to the Christian, you're able to live a counter-cultural life. You are able to some degree and measure, you're able to crucify flesh, crucify your flesh, and you are able to be on the lookout to serve others, to have the interests of others before the interests of yourself. We would say, and it would not be an exaggeration, that the central theme that, or one of the central themes that runs through this book as you read it, is joy. Oh, it's not any old joy. Let's, not, let's be clear upon that. There's joy in sin for the sinner, but we're talking here about a specific kind of joy, and we're talking about a particular joy. What are we talking about? We're talking about Christian joy. This is what this epistle's about. Well, friends, we will never know Christian joy if we're taken up with ourselves. If you only think about yourselves, you'll not know Christian joy. You'll just be like the world. You'll just be like the worldling. 
And the Christian who wants to know more of this Christian joy, he has to look to others. And basically, friends, the pattern for the Christian is this. It's very simple. It's not difficult. The pattern for the Christian is Christ first, others next, and ourselves last. That's what he wants to impress upon us. It's simple, crystal clear. This is not difficult. This is ABC, Christianity. We could bring this to the primary school children. They would understand this. And Paul is out there for, for the Philippians to be ones who will look out for each other. Instead of looking out for themselves. Now, we will come to it in, in our study of Philippians. I just want to touch upon it at the moment to help us understand this introduction here. But there were two main difficulties in the Philippians. Whether it was one congregation or a collection of congregations, we cannot be certain. But there was two main problems that he will address that are connected with what we want to draw your attention to today. What were these problems? Well, the first problem we can find in chapter 3, in verse 15 or so. It's a problem regarding perfectionism. Perfectionism. What is that? Well, there were people in the congregation, or congregations, and they were saying to themselves, we've reached a state of perfection. We've really arrived. We're no longer a work in progress. We're perfect. We no longer sin. And therefore, we are different. We're better than the rest of you. That was one of the problems that Paul deals with later on, perfectionism. And as you can imagine, those who feel themselves to have reached this state of perfectionism or would not in any sense be concerned about those who are below them. They're out for themselves. It's selfish. And of course, the root of that problem is pride. Pride. Looking down on people. Now, of course, we don't believe in perfectionism. We will only be perfect when we enter into eternity. That's what the Bible would teach us. And we're all Christians. We're all a work in progress. Some are more sanctified than others, but none of us are perfect in this world. It's only when we pass into glory, as our catechism would teach us. And there was another problem. We find it in chapter 4, verse 2. There was two ladies in the congregation and they were divided. There was a dispute between them. We don't know what the dispute was. It really doesn't matter. It was probably something very trivial. Very often these things are. But what happens when there's two people in a congregation and they're at lockerheads? What happens? Well, 
other people in the congregation will take sides. And of course, again, the root of the problem is selfishness leading to pride. And that's why in these opening verses, before he introduces the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is crying out for them for unity. Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. If there is any group of people who should be united, surely it is Christians. And I'm not talking about uh, the unification of denominations. We're here today in Partick, and we are confined by these four walls. And the preacher has got his heart and has got his eye set upon the people that are within these four walls. And we are to realize that as a congregation, if we're ever going to be used, if we're ever going to be used in a way that is God-honoring and God-glorifying, there must be unity and there must be harmony among the people of God that come together and worship week in and week out. We could go on and talk about unity of denominations and that that's a much bigger and broader issue whatsoever. Friends, we are to concern ourselves what lies before us here. This is what Paul is talking about. He wants them to be united. He wants each of them to look out for others rather than themselves and to be united. And should not Christians in a congregation be united? Do we not know the same Savior? Have we not had all of our sins forgiven? Are we going to hold a grudge against someone? That's why we read from Matthew chapter 18. If there are any grievances between individuals in the congregation, the person who feels aggrieved, what's he supposed to do or what is she supposed to do? Well, she is to air that grievance with the one with whom he or she is grieved. It's a one-to-one -one matter. It's not to be in the public domain. Take the person aside. Speak to them calmly, openly, quietly. Let it be known what is in your mind. It could well just be a simple misunderstanding and a frank and full conversation might draw it all to a close. It's done, it's dusted, it's healed, it's restored. Well, you know what happens if they don't agree. Take two or three where the matter may be established by, with witnesses. And if that doesn't work, well, it comes to the church. But friends, what is Paul telling us? What's he telling the Philippians? They are to be absolutely united. This is what happens when we become Christians. People from different backgrounds, 
who ordinarily would have nothing in common with the person behind them or in front of them or beside them. Yet in Christ, what happens? We are united. The same Savior, same Father, same Holy Spirit has regenerated us, the same hope that's before us. We war the same warfare, we fight the good fight of faith, the same things, the same things happens to us. We're all one in Christ. And that's why he impresses upon them that they be uni unity among them. And he will go on, as we shall notice, at the appropriate time, he will go on and offer up a number of examples of individuals who have, who have put others before themselves. In this chapter, we're inclined to believe there are four examples that we shall look at in due course. The ultimate example, of course, is the Savior. But Paul himself is mentioned in this chapter and also Timothy and Epaphras. Or Epaphroditus, I should say. They are all given as examples for us. And this is something that the Bible does. It not only exhorts us, but it gives us reasons and it gives us examples. And as we said, Christ is the ultimate example for one who did not consider himself, but put others before himself. This was the very meat and substance of his mission. Did he not say it was a delight to do the will of the Father? This is, what, this is how he, he occupied his life. He followed the will of the Father. He did not deviate at any moment. And if what Jesus has done, we are to walk in his footsteps. Now the Lord Jesus Christ, looked for the, to the interests of others as he followed the Father as a man. The Lord Jesus Christ, of course, was God in the flesh, but as a man, he subjected himself to the will of the Father, and he put others first. And that's the way it must be for the Christian. We must put others first. Look out for others, the interests of others first. But we have an even greater reason for following in the footsteps of the Savior. He, as a man, subjected himself to the Father and put the interests of others before himself. But we have a greater reason. What's that reason? We're all sinners. All sinners. Christ was no sinner. He became sin. Yes, he suffered and died in the room in place of sinners, but it was impossible for him to sin. And therefore, we have a greater reason to consider others before ourselves. Let nothing be done through strife for vain glory. This would surely remind us of that problem that I 
spoke about earlier, the problem of perfectionism. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, excessive boasting and pride. This is what the perfectionists were doing. Now, we're not inclined to think that that is a problem among our congregation. We don't think that anyone has been subject to this false doctrine of perfectionism. But it may be that the principle can be found in other things that we do. What am I getting at? What am I thinking about? Well, friends, there may be something in among us and as free church men that we are inclined to look down upon those who don't worship the same way as we do. We firmly believe that our worship is according to the Word of God, and we are fixed and firm on our principles, and we're willing to defend them, and we're not to be ashamed of them. But what about others who may well be genuine Christians, and they don't agree with our principles? They don't agree with our stance on purity of worship, for instance. Do we look down on those? Do we look upon them as second-class Christians, deficient? We need to be very careful. This is the same thing that these perfectionists were doing. We've arrived. We're perfect. You're not. I could think maybe of a, another incident or another example, again, not really pertinent to our own particular congregation, but we would see it in the church in general. Do we not know of congregations who will tell us that someone can be born again by the Spirit of God, but they need Later on, a subsequent experience whereby they are baptized in the Spirit so that they can now speak in tongues. Again, I acknowledge this is not a difficulty or a problem within our own walls here, but we would know of certain congregations who would maintain this. That someone is born again, yes, they're a Christian, but they need the second blessing, they need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that they speak in tongues. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. This is revolutionary. If this is going to be carried out in our congregations, it will transform the church. Well then, what about ourselves then? Because the Apostle Paul is saying this is the way he wants them to be because he says, fulfill ye my joy. Now, we've noticed that the Apostle Paul was joyful even in prison, even that, in that horrible experience. 
as he was trapped in some sense and he, he couldn't go forth and preach the gospel as he would like, yet he was joyful. But he says to them, fulfill ye my joy. In other words, fill my joy to the brim, to the overflowing, when I see you putting into practice these things. When, as Christians, you look out for the interests of others rather than promoting your own interests. Well, then, we want to ask ourselves this question. Are you on the lookout? Look, not every man and his own things. Can this be said of you? Today, here, in Partick, and in amongst this congregation, do you ever consider anyone else? Do you ever consider their interests, their needs? You are to be on the lookout. He's telling us not always to be looking after ourselves. Of course, the, we have to consider ourselves. We're not to totally abandon ourselves. That's not what he's teaching, of course. But he's reminding us that by nature, we are so inclined to be taken up with our own selves, our own little world, and everything revolves around me. Well, that's not to be our pattern. This is part, indeed, of, the, of being with Christ being like him, but every man also on the things of others. This is the way of joy. This is the way of Christian joy. This is what Paul says on another occasion in Romans chapter 12, when he begins that practical part of that deeply uh, theological and doctrinal book, the book of Romans, in chapter 12, verse 3, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Not to think of himself more highly. It's an exhortation to the minister. It's an exhortation to the office bearer. What are we? We are but servants. We serve under the kingship and the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are ones who lead by example and we are to be very careful about the example that we give. And surely our example should be that we look after the interests of others. We are prepared to cast aside our own interests and to think about others. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 12. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. In honor, preferring one another. 
Did not that chapter we read in Matthew chapter 18, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Was this not something that affected the disciples and the apostles seeking to be great? The greatest among us is those who serve, not who serve themselves, but to serve others. This is not really the very essence of biblical Christianity. Did not Christ come from heaven and surrendered his will to the will of the Father? If that's the way the Son of God is to behave, it's not, not going to be the way of those who follow in his footsteps. Is it not true that we want the blessings that Christ gives? We're very glad to grab them. We want forgiveness of sins. We want to be reconciled to God. We want to be adopted into the family of God. We want to know that our eternal future is secure, that we have a home in heaven. But are we ones who care and look out for the interests of others? It's deeply sobering. The Word of God strips us of our self-righteousness. It speaks. It's like, a, it's like a hammer. It can break open the hardest of hearts. It's a fire. It can indeed consume our dross. It can reveal to us the shallowness of our profession. But we are to be on the lookout for others. Amen.